just two local guys with so much to say. So listen to the real estate brothers today. Now, today's podcast, you're going to be able to download a free family planning spreadsheet. Ooh, we love spreadsheets, don't we? You can grab that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash legacy. It's going to be a good one today. But before we get going, a little bit of recap. Christmas is over. You celebrate Christmas. Hopefully, we're all selling the New Year's. But right now, in terms of investing, things are going pretty well for investors right now. But everybody knows about inflation. Even the regular people out there, they know that inflation is rising all the bolts at this point. And prices on real estate is just keeps going up. Commercial real estate hasn't really gone on the huge frenzy that residential real estate is going. But I definitely see the second half, 2023, the commercial prices will definitely be running up a lot like have you seen with the residential prices, which means it's not yet too late to get in. As far as apartment goes, everything's going pretty well. Rents are continuing going up. I anticipate rents to kind of slow down a little bit, but still be increasing, which is healthy. But as much as I love in, in par- investing in apartments, the majority of my net worth is in that asset class. I've been looking around lately and you always want to look for stuff, the contrarian point of view. And what is one of those? Hotels, right? Hotels get beat up in the pandemic recession. But something I've been realizing is hotels, just like short-term rentals, everybody's looking at short-term rentals out there, Airbnb, VRBL, they're discretionary items. Now, something I've been learning a little bit, uh, doing my due diligence on this asset class is there's a big difference between the two and the three-star hotels, the crappy Holiday Inn Expresses that I stayed in for about five years, the Comfort Inns, maybe the semi-nicer three, four-star hotels the lower end Marriott's, those types. Those are the ones that are going to, to me, struggle in another pandemic or recession, especially as people stop spending money on that type of stuff. Something I've realized lately is the high-end luxury stuff, like your Four Seasons in Hawaii or Hilton in Hawaii. And I keep saying Hawaii because I think there's a big difference between investing in two, three, four-star hotels in the middle of, piece of junk, Alabama, Kentucky, like these areas that no one really want to go for vacation. Your only reason you're going there is because your company tells you you got to get your butt off a plane to go talk to some folks in the flyover states. But places like Hawaii, and we always beat up on Hawaii and California as places where it's not a really great place to invest for cash flow, but it is always going to be paradise and place where people will aspire to live the dream for their one week of vacation. The people that are self-selecting to going to these places are going to be going to the five or six star hotels. So start to look into buying a hotel in Hawaii is that everybody wants to do that. What a cool trophy asset that is. Add that to my coffee and chocolate parcels. And I started to talk to some developers that I knew and some other folks in the industry And, you know, start to realize that if I wanted to buy, go off on this investment thesis that I need to stay to the high end so I can go into recession-proof assets that cash flow, I need to be now competing with the institutional operators, which is not going to happen. It's the same reason why there are a few out there that will invest in like Nate Frank Peters, but now Amazon is getting into the game. All the little guys are getting blown out of the water with this type of stuff. Same thing with industrial and office space, which is why the average person can't really get involved. But apartments, you can buy large, smaller apartments or 
put together a private equity group, go after a $40, $50 million apartment. But with the industrial and office, you got to get to much huger scale. And very similarly, maybe to a more extreme case, luxury five-star, six-star hotels, which you're talking now on a magnitude of $200 million plus, and there's not very good financing on that. So you're talking about a bigger equity in comparison to the purchase price. Another thing, these are the weird nuances to don't really think of as an investor when you're outside of the industry. But something I've learned is that developers, when they're making these really fancy five, six star hotels, when you look in the P&Ls of this stuff, they're not really cash flowing. It doesn't seem too much of a moneymaker. But what's really the moneymaker is selling off the timeshares. So if you've seen a place like Hilton Wine Village, there's it was built in different phases and there was a section of it that gets sold off to the timeshares. How do I say this in a nice way? But they are the absolutely worst consumers buying that stuff. If you're the hotel owner, you create a nice property, a campus, you make a couple of timeshares and you sell it and you gouge those types of unsophisticated investors. But we all know who are the people who buy timeshares. Those are the people who just get suckered into buying this stuff because they want that dream. They want it feel like an investor, but they're really just a timeshare person with a bunch of points or whatever. But that's the play for these large hotel operators, developers that they create the campus and they make their money on that sale of those timeshares to the sucker buyers. Another thing too that I also found is a lot of these bigger brands like the Hilton, these mainstays, if you've heard, they get out of it and a lot of the money is coming in is dumb institutional money. Again, like these are the people who are investing the lazy retirement funds of a lot of the folks that don't listen to this podcast, the expectations are a lot lower. And a lot of times these big hotel operators, they're just lending their brands. So really they don't have any skin in the game. Just another example, the bigger that you get, it's easier to not fail and you don't really have skin in the game. And as much as I'd love to go and invest in a Hilton or Four Seasons, they don't need private equity money. So it's not really finding any deals in that type of world. But you can go buy a Holiday Inn or one of these lower end hotels. But again, like I said earlier, you know, there, I think there's a lot of risk into buying that type of discretionary item in the two to four star category. But anyway, part of this whole idea of investing in hotels, I'm probably not going to do it, but it was just put on because the mastermind that we're putting on in Hawaii this next week, pretty much the final week to buy your tickets for those of you coming out or you're going to have over 80 people there. I'm really excited to see you guys there. We're going to have a little less than half our family office of HANA members or VIPs and then general events. So looking forward to meeting you a lot of people in person for the first time. Enjoy the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Today, we are going to be talking to Annette Cam, who wrote a book called Wait, Don't Die Yet. So it's a complete guide for all things that nobody wants to talk about before, during, and after a loved one's passing. So going to be a lot to do with legacy and estate planning. If you guys want to check out the show notes to this, we'll post the video of this and also more pertinent information surrounding this topic at simplepassacashflow.com and uh, before we get going I'm going to apologize because Annette is here in Hawaii too and she is probably going to get me to speak some pretty poor pidgin English which tends to come out when we get together 
but we're not drinking, so it won't be too bad. But Annette, thanks for uh, jumping on. Appreciate you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so paint the picture for us. What did you do before you really got uh, interested into this topic matter? What did you do for that dreaded day job? Oh, my history was, I have to go back to my history because to me, everything is not a coincidence. Okay, back in 1968, I spent two months in the hospital with a ruptured appendix, almost died. But that propelled me to become a nurse. So for the last 42 years, I was a nurse. I retired five years ago. But within this time span, I also came down with an illness called fibromyalgia. And it was very debilitating. Suffered for over 10 years. But then I saw this book that changed my life. Connected up with a doctor. Started a non-profit here in Hawaii. Reached out to the mainland and beyond. And last November, I had to pivot my whole focus in life because of what had happened to me with my in-laws passing. And this is what has led me on a new mission. So I stepped down as president of the nonprofit last November, and I wrote this book to help people realize that they think they have their affairs in order for passing or their loved ones passing or their parents passing. And that it's such a myth that they think as long as they have their will, their trust and all that, they're fine. That's really not the case, basically. So before we unravel some of those problems and issues that people don't think of too much, you spent uh, a lot of your career as a postpartum nurse, and we've had a lot of postpartum nurses or doctors in that arena on the podcast in the last several years. And they give some insights into this from their dying patients. Anything before we move on, any takeaways that kind of have been impactful to your life? going through that experience with so many patients? I know the postpartum nurse, so I didn't have the death and dying part as much, but I've seen the life. I did an interview once on, it was interesting because she said, I've seen life come into the world. I've seen suffering because of my fibromyalgia group and now I'm helping people in death. That's the kind of a neat cycle to, to be in, catch all phases of life. Are you a non-accredited investor looking for opportunities to invest passively? How about a newer investor looking to get a bit of a track record and confidence from your skeptic spouse? And could you use the reinforcement of monthly checks paid like clockwork? The American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP, is looking to bring new investors with them. I've been investing with them since 2016, and originally, I used it as a means to pay for my regular expenses. I started with $60,000 as my initial investment, and that paid for my car payment completely for me. AHP collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes by restructuring or selling the debts, unlike their competitors that just kick their homeowners out on the streets. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when owner George Newberry saw the impact our simple passive cash flow monthly crew was making approach me to become a spokesperson of the company. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahptitle.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And if you haven't done yet, join our private investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. All right, so let's get into this typical example, right? So I think... The most people that are listening here, mostly accredited investors, maybe in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they have an older parent that is dying. Most of the people listening are typically first-generation wealth folks. So a lot of our parents, they might have a million dollars now because, you know, when you're a good saver, anybody can get to a million dollars in 70, 80, 90 years. 
So not talking about a huge estate being left behind, but what are you seeing as some of the uh, the pitfalls or the mistakes that people should be planning for right now, knowing that the, this is going to happen? If you look at the history of what I went through in my book, my father-in-law was very organized. He was 99 when he passed, had both of his checkbooks you know, balanced to the penny. And 16 years before he passed, he actually educated her what Sunday night we went over to dinner and he told her exactly where the safe was, where the key to a safe was, safe work, his will, his truck, the best directives, power of attorney, he had all that stuff. So we thought when he passed and my mother-in-law told me, you take care of everything, we thought it wouldn't be that much of a problem because he had all the paperwork. But then we found out it wasn't just the paperwork that was enough. It was all the other mundane things that people would just never think about. It was like the secret safe he had and a secret key that he showed up. We went to get the key. Here's a key. Instead of one key on a keychain, there's 20 keys on a keychain, all unlabeled. So it's a little things like that. Just makes your life a little harder when you follow up on some of the classes. Just a little things like that. I mentioned about a utility bill with a telephone company where 10 days after my father-in-law passed, my mother-in-law's phone broke the landline. And that's the only communication with us. And you think it's so simple. All you do is call the telephone company up. They're going to fix the phone. But it took me three months, 29 phone calls, and getting the Better Business Bill involved because she was not on the bill. So she didn't have the authorization. Even though we could still pay the bill, she wasn't authorized to get it fixed. How simple would it have been just to add on the second name? And people don't think of those little things. Just think little things like that. The location of where is your motor vehicle registration? Who's on the registration? And how do you sell the car if, if your name is not on it? You know? So these are the things that I captured in the book. When I started going through all this, I'm going with phone numbers to call, you know, who to call, what to follow up on. What happened is I started making a list and I gave this list out to friends because we're all baby boomers and we're all have you know, parents that are passing or spouses that are sick actually. With the age where spouses are sick. And everybody I gave this to told me, you got to get this out here. And that's why I wrote the book. It was to help people to avoid going through what I went through. Basic, that's the basic premise is just getting them through. But the book itself is not just about the things you do beforehand. It also takes you through everything through like caregiving and the file system, what to do after death. There's even a section on transitioning and what are you looking for. These are the things that people just don't, Think of, basically. Yeah, so we'll dive into that the care home and the assisted living portion there in a little bit. But just to close the loophole on all those, the laundry list of, of things that you should probably be looking for. Annette's book, we'll get you guys access to electronic copy later. I've got a, a laundry list of things in a Google sheet form for um, that we use in the family office group at simplepassacastle.com slash legacy. But my suggestion would be, yeah, it seems really annoying for a lot of us because on the parents passing, like our time is very valuable, right? We are the sandwich generation. We have to take care of the older folks' affairs, close it up, but also we got the younger generation to take care of. So if the older generation can just spend, granted, it takes them a long time to do this, but hey, they have time at that point in their life. Print out the Google Sheet or whatever, put it on paper for them to handwrite it in. I think everybody over a million dollar net worth should have an executive assistant. <laughs> Scan it and then put it into your Google Doc form. You don't have mom and dad do that. But to me, that's a best practice. But any other best practices you picked up? The book itself has my story in it. And everything saved what is it to the guidebook that is a pre-downloadable also. And people think, oh, I don't have time to do this. You know, but 
actually, in reality, it takes maybe two weeks to fill it up because you're not going to fill up the whole guidebook at once. You're filling up the part that you're living through at the moment. And it just has all the important information. So you just got to tell your heirs where the information is. You fill it out. Basically, download the guidebook. You fill it out. And then you just update it once a year. I recommend using an erasable pen because things change. You add in properties. You add in more assets. You sell properties. And so these things have to be updated, obviously. But it's easily done with this guidebook that I included. And it tells everything basically. If you have a mortgage, who's the mortgage witness? Um, who's your agent for insurance? It, it covers everything that I, I could possibly think of. I don't know. It, it's just a great resource, I think. And I just want to help people out, basically. Right. Checklist Manifesto, because I read that book by playing without it. Here's something that I'm not really familiar is like the parents get to that age where they can't take care of themselves. Um, maybe walk us through that issue. Yeah, I went through that with my father-in-law and then my mother-in-law. Actually, my father-in-law was going through a process, but he passed away too soon. But then my mother-in-law got sick a little later. And there's nothing when I, one thing that really pertinent is that a lot of older people, once they fall, that's the downhill trend. She didn't break her hip, but she did fall. And what was supposed to be a short relapse ended up being three months. And then all of a sudden, you don't realize that these rehab centers can't tell you Next week, she's got to be out of here. And then what do you do? So then you have to go find a care home or a nursing home, whatever. And what I found out, and I was really fortunate because a social worker helped us. But what I found out is that you have to be very careful about your care home. You, know, you think that when you're looking for a good care home or that you're looking for a place that's you know, safe, clean, you have already running the place, so there's activities. But the book goes into a little bit more of that because I interviewed caregivers. And I was really lucky because the caregiver I chose, she had been doing it for 16 years. Before I even introduced it to my mother-in-law, we had center, she had already gone there to interview her and found out what her favorite foods were. Because can you imagine going to a care room and not being able to eat the food that you want? And my mother-in-law, kids, all she wanted was Taco Bell tacos, Burger King with hot burgers, Coca-Cola, hot uh, cocoa and sushi. So if she had that once a week, she was happy. I'm actually general partner in a deal where we're building some uh, assisted living and we're building them in pods. This is on the mainland. Every pod is supposed to be like a different ethnic group. Older people, they like to live with their own ethnic kind of group, whether it's right or wrong. It is what it is. doesn't matter. But they have different like food offerings. Yeah. So the transition part is, there's a part in the book about going through the transition part where I interviewed caregivers, uh, whether or not you're going to be the caregiver for your parent or you don't have room and the, and the caregiving has to go outside of your home. There's just some guidelines, things like you, you think about, like my girlfriend, she brought her mother in her, to her home and forgot about the throw of. And guess what? She fell and broke her hip. So these are the little things that are covered in the book that are not really little things, actually big things. If you really you know, think about it, well, there's a lot of things. People think about like handrail, safety, stuff like that, but they forget the little thing. Yeah. So at what age should like my generation be like, hey, mom or dad, what what age do they hit that you should start to have this conversation? Like, all right, in the next five to 10 years, what is the plan? But it's a really rough thing because it's a sensitive topic. And really, when you're in your 30s, 40s, your parents are in their 50s, 60s, and they're like, I'm almost 70 and I'm doing well. But if I didn't go through this and somebody has brought it up, please tell me about what, what you got planned down the road. We don't 
it's not a subject that people like to bring up because it's not an easy subject to bring up because of a partial thing. I'm not even at that point where I'm sick or dying, so why are we bringing it up now? But people just don't realize just how important it is to be ready ahead of time because things can happen at any time. One of my friends just texted me, emailed me another day that his brother was only two years younger. He was like 68, just passed away, nothing in order. That propelled him to really take a look at the book and say, I got to get my things in order for my family. Could you think you're 60, 70? I'm still young and I still have time. That's all we have to say. We have a kind of a long lifespan. So you think you have a lot of time, but your death has no thought of it. When it's going to happen, you're either going to be ready or you're not. Basically, that's bottom line. I haven't thought too much about it. We haven't had a talk yet, but you got several options and maybe add on to it by missing anything. But your first option is... The parents, they own their own house or they're already living in somewhere. They age in place, right? This is typically what most folks want to do because, you know, people don't like change. Change is bad and they got all their crap all there. and They don't want to go through it. But it's the cons are obviously, right? It may not be set up to be medically best place. They can trip and fall and they don't have the medical staff there available. So you've got to have somebody come and help them out or you got to be the person to do it, which in my opinion is not the highest and best use, especially if you're listening to this podcast right now. The next option is you have a series of different assisted living, semi-assisted, like maybe can you break down those different options? I know here in Hawaii, it's interesting because there's assisted living facility, but you also have to think ahead because they're nice places, wonderful places. But then you have to think about down the road, once they need more care, can they stay there? And many of the places here do not allow it. Once they need skilled nursing care, they're out of there. They're fine as long as they're ambulatory and they don't have any major medical problems. But once they hit a certain benchmark and they need more skilled nursing care, you have to find another place. Now, I think there's only, in Hawaii, there's only three places that let you, when you get in, you can stay till you die because they have the care that they can give you there. But it's like a jacked up system, right? Because it's a lo- life of lottery. Like you pay in and if you die early, then the house takes the money. If you happen to live the most, then you eat off of the other person who's died off their funds that they put into the system. And yeah, I mean, it. you know, I don't know. The way we do business is carried interest. To me, I don't, seems to me that they make money when the person does not live long, which doesn't seem the lined interest. But anyway, that's just how it is. But is that pretty much the gamble that unsophisticated money people have to make? But, you know, what to do? Because some of them here that are here, I haven't checked out myself, is that, yeah, you got to put in like a million dollars. You have to put in 5000 just to be on the waiting list, which is like four or five years off. You have to think way ahead. And most people who are hoarding cash in their house only have sub-million dollar net worth and they have to either sell their house and they don't want to do that because they want to live in place as much as possible or do a reverse uh, HELOC, reverse mortgage, which isn't a bad idea in some cases. But I don't, I, I don't know, it's worth the discussion because it gets complicated like this. Typically the house wins, right? The sophisticated operators win off and then the uneducated consumer gets screwed at the end. So you know, with your listeners here with this network, for what we have, including myself, it's nice to have all these little other properties and you can still end up going to a really nice place that will take you all the way until you pass away because you can sell one of your properties. At least you have a you can and you can get back the million dollars from one or two properties. So uh, that's one thought. You really don't have to give your whole net worth away. If you have only one property, yeah, that much is going to go when it's time for you to 
actually get there. And that's the only way you can get there is by selling your house. Can you stay in the house and then assign the rights to it at a future date? Does it work like that? Or do you have to totally commit? Your wife, they say, okay, we have an opening. You got to take it now. I think you got to take it. And then you have so much time to get the right in to pay for the rest of your stay there. Yeah. That's why I understand it from just talking to different people who are in the process of doing it. My brother-in-law, I have a friend that is doing that now. Just just getting prepared. But yeah, it's, it's a really interesting situation that you find yourself inside, especially here in Hawaii. It's not cheap. But I'm not too careful. We'll probably cost you anywhere out of problem. Eight to $10,000, even more a month. And people are prepared for that. I don't know if you can speak to this, but for some people, maybe under half a million dollars net worth, probably un- or under millions is still an, a thought. Is the strategy sometimes to exhaust all assets to be a warden of the state? Yeah, I think two years, but it might be more now where you have to exhaust everything. And then there's this gap of two years or more now. And a lot of people quantify to go out of the state care. That's it. You don't really want to go to this. But some people have to, you know. The private care homes, as I found out, are not actually bad. They're much cheaper. And it's bad to get like maybe four people in a reservoir. We're really fortunate here in Hawaii because we have that culture. Like there's a nice Filipino culture that they do this for the family and they do this for others. So that's what happened in my mother-in-law's case. And I was really happy with what, what we ended up with. Yeah, in my personal way, I would do it, but it's uh-huh. technically legal or sanctions, right? We all know that. But that's just how people do things in Hawaii. And I guess what we're talking about, folks, most of the listeners here on the mainland, but here you'll get somebody who, everybody's got side gigs here in Hawaii because it's so hard to make ends meet. So you might have a nurse that works their job and then will also part-time live in somebody else's house and stay in caregiver. Best in both worlds, right? You get people who like love the client gives them the best care and it's a win-win for both. We do have our big box assisted living and care homes here mm-hmm. in Hawaii, but not as prevalent as the mainland. As things on the mainland, things are typically done. Yeah, you can afford a lot more too. That is one of the things where um, I still live in Hawaii. If you know the right people, right? It's all your network is your network. Or your network is who watches your mom. I mean, what's your opinion between some of those smaller, let's call them boutiques, Versus the big boxes, it's your personal opinion. Your personal opinion depends on what kind of setting you want your parent or you want yourself to be in. Some people like to have this nice setting where they go to a dining room to eat and then you have all these friends there versus staying in a hole where you're eating with one, two or three other people. You know, so it's a personal opinion. And also you have to look at what kind of activities do they offer? If you just go to a city watching TV all day at this home, that doesn't make any sense. But do they have... Activities to keep you busy, whatever it is. It could be, do they have shows to watch? Or do they have, you know, classes or art or whatever? Those things are things that are part of a assisted living facility. They do have what you're saying. And that's pretty impressive when you actually go to visit them and you see what they have. Aside from they have, some of them even have the beauty salon or pickleball courts. It's a crazy, but they do offer those things. Yeah, you like the pickleball. That's the thing now. Here's, here's the big question. It's like, all right, mom and dad are getting to that age. Who do I talk to? Is there a date, like a website with, let's like a directory? Like, where do I go to figure out, number one, what are those big boxes? And how can you even start to find some of those smaller boutiques? The first step, obviously, is communicating you know, with your spouse or your parent. You have to get the communication open first to even talk about something like this. And then once they see that, yeah, I should start thinking about this and long-term care or whatever, maybe we should start looking. When my mother-in-law was at that point, 
we had to scramble to look for different faces. So we went to visit different faces before we settled on one. I think being able to have the conversation and then actually going out to visit the different assisted care living facilities is a big help because then you have open communication. Yeah, I don't mind being here or I don't mind being. At least they have input rather than they get sick and they're forced to do something because that's the only place that's open at the time, which is sad. So planning ahead is important. Like many of these places, you can reserve a spot for down the road, you know, and it costs you maybe a few thousand dollars. Where do they get the list of places first? In a hospital setting, we have center. A social worker helps you, will help you do that. There's the private ones and then the state-run ones. And then the, the more private ones or a more exclusive one, I think about their own, basically. Hey, get up to Miller page and do an internet search. There's many out there. It, it's better for you guys to do the searches. If not, you guys will get hit hunted with a bunch of sales reps. We'll yeah. bring you to the ones that just are good with marketing. Yeah, and, and you got to do it early. You got to be prepared. It's sad to say that you have to think of it so in advance, but you really do. Because you just never know tomorrow or about to have a stroke and then what? So getting off the topic of care homes, any things that you've seen, like a lesson learned, or maybe this has happened that should have been avoided somehow, it's a little bit proactive planning you want to mention. Yeah, and that's what the guidebook's about because we got into step-by-step in the part of the book. It's just little things like, say something happens to your spouse tonight and you're up at the hospital, okay? Would you know exactly what meds he's on, how much dosage, how often it's taken, what's it for, who his doctor is, or the doctor's phone number. The guidebook guides you through all that stuff so that there's no question and all you do is update it. You can just grab this book and go, hey, this is what it is, or make a copy of that part of the guidebook and take it to you with the the hospital. But those are the things that are important. Things like you can have insurance, but okay, you passed away, who's my agent? Like I have some uh, who like insurance policies. And when I looked up on the website, okay, who am I contacting? There's like four different numbers. So then I got to my agent. I said, okay, I know you're the first contact. What's the second contact in case I can't get hold of you? And that's in my guidebook. I put it down. When I went through this whole process with my mother and my father-in-law, I can really tell you how prevalent this waste of time, being on the phone, especially with Hawaii being six hours or four, three to six hours, remaining in the reporting and we're waking up and I have to get hold of all these important people or departments and you have to go through a long list of, okay, go on the internet, find out the number, call the number, and then you get transferred to transfer. So those phone calls took me anywhere from half an hour to an hour just to get to the right person. So this, the Bible had every phone number in the contact person so you can go straight to the number if something should happen to you or your heirs can go straight to it. Because people don't realize how many places have to be notified. Your pension, your social security, your insurance, all kinds of stuff. Everybody's got to be notified and, and they all want your death certificate. So that's another thing you have to think about. How many death certificates are you going to order when your loved one passes? People don't realize all these little things that they need to end up doing. And they need time to grieve. They, they don't need to be thrown into the situation of having to handle all of this in the middle of a loved one's passing. So this is just to avoid all that, basically. We're known for the simple and passive way of doing things, right? We pay a little bit of money, not overpaying, but we just pay for time. Like when people get married and spouses have to change their name, there's consultants for that. We pay consultants to 
book our rewards, travel, our, our credit points. The other, I pay people to negotiate cars for me. I never go to the dealership. They just do all that stuff for me. I pay them a little bit. But there should be somebody who like, there's a huge service for somebody who like does this stuff for people. So I don't know, when I find that person, I'll put it into that webpage for you guys. There's got to be somebody or if you guys out there have found like the, these private consultants that do this. I mean, it's, it's what entrepreneurs do. They find that need in the community and they fulfill it and they monetize it. But it's a little bit of a public service here. Just off the top of my head, if you guys have wills, you guys don't want wills, you guys want trust. So you can skip probate to me if your attorney gets you probably need a new attorney because that's not what you want. I'd like to know your opinion on this. So like my opinion, I just see so many clients, they go through so much battles, even when all the surviving siblings get along to liquidate assets. If you guys are already at that point or your parents are urgent to just liquidate this stuff and get rid of the stupid things because it's like all this crap about like sentimental value just going to piss people off at the end of the day. You're so right, man, because but like now, I know so many people who got along with their siblings until the parent passed. And all of a sudden, they want to sell it, and one person holds off. You don't want to bring that, that one sibling to court to settle this. So yeah. it'll just go on for years. What it reminds me of is that boss at work who never liked to be the enemy and always wanted to play both sides. At the end of the day, all their employees get pissed off at each other and the team falls apart anyway. So you parents out there, you guys need to be the bad guy and make the unenviable decision, just making a call for everybody so we can just all move on and focus. That's my rant. I agree. I see just too many families broken up, siblings getting along and then all of a sudden not getting along. Not talking to each other. Yeah. Or they get cute with, oh, somebody gets the sports car, somebody gets this. Right. Dude, just liquidate everything in just a math exercise. And you know, and part of it is if you're older, and why not give away the things now? Why don't wait till you die before you have to give away everything? Okay, folks, be careful there. Do not give properties away. That's like our property. What's wrong with that? You give it to them while they can enjoy it. Of course, we all want to be on the up and up, 15,000 yeah. personal exemption. Whatever. But yeah, I agree. Like those smaller things, give it away now. But like properties, the reason why you guys don't want to give properties away is your kids will not get the step up basis. They're going to absorb the basis you have. and They have to pay huge capital gains. So I've seen this happen two or three times where a family has like a $500,000 property. They bought it in Los Angeles and now it's worth $4 million, And the parents are so kind in their heart to give it away. But dude, don't do that. You screwed them over. Oh, yeah. Like I pay a I don't I, I, I. I think that you probably agree with me on this is that you do an appraisal so that you cost basis for tax wise and you don't end up and paying up crazy taxes with the appreciation. Yeah. If the estate is over five, ten million dollars, you probably should consult an attorney oh, because yeah. it may make more sense to put into irrevocable trust, a dynasty mm-hmm. trust. But if it's less than that, keep it it should be pretty simple. But I would say to be prepared, you have to get a good attorney and a good accountant. I I was fortunate because I had and they spoke with each other. So that was really nice. So I got things done, which would have been very difficult if I didn't have somebody I trusted. Any other last tidbits of advice? All I'd say is to get prepared, take the first step. I think the book that I had is pretty, pretty comprehensive. And whether or not people think they need or not, it wouldn't be hard to download it because it's free. It's at anetcam.com, A-N-N-E-K-A-M.com, one word. You can download the book for free. You can download the guidebook. If you think, no, I think I got everything covered. I encourage them to just go on Amazon, look at the reviews because I get emails. I look at the reviews and I know that something as simple as this book, and it's not difficult, but you can probably read it in a couple of days, but something as simple as this, 
can impact so many people. That's where I've learned people that have all the sudden say, okay, yeah, I'm ready to do this or tell me. I bring it up and I've changed our lives because I'm communicating with my husband. So that, that's the important thing is communication, get prepared, do first steps. Just one step at a time. If you don't make that first step, nothing gets done. So folks go to uh, Amazon, pick up the book, Wait, Don't Die. And it can, there's 123 five-star reviews, which is pretty awesome. People are so negative these days. Either it's either two or three stars. So that means it's pretty good. Her website, she has the free electronic copy of this. You guys can read it, but... Hey, I would pick up the hard copy for mom and dad. You know how they don't trust anything that's electronic these days. They don't think it's legitimate. So like the 20 bucks you guys pay will be well worth it. That's like a one hour of some new college age kid. Maybe you guys hourly rates worth way more than that. So just pick up the book, buy two for them, put it on every John that they have. So the parents can read it. Maybe it sends a message that way. We'll put this in the show notes at simplepassacashflow.com slash legacy. Thanks for jumping on net. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you're the only person who is going to look out for your best interests. Hey, just some legal stuff here. Although these two brothers are pretty knowledgeable and have over 2,100 rental units and own over $160 million worth of real estate, the preceding are only ideas and not to be taken as legal, tax, or financial advice, okay? You should always seek the professional advice of other professionals on your team and think for yourself and do your own due diligence, okay? Aloha.